Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. So Daniil Medvedev is an Australian Open finalist. He joins Novak Djokovic, who he'll face in Sunday's final. And of course, Naomi Osaka and Jen Brady in that singles final lineup. You might notice I sound a little bit different to the usual very high uh, audio quality you've come to be accustomed to, hopefully. And that is all because Billie Jean has chewed through a very, very, very fundamental cable to the recording process. <laughs> Why am I laughing? <laughs> I mean, and this has this happened during the first version of this call yes. uh, and recording. So, yep. yeah. I was only saying two weeks ago that I'd never had to do a re-record in my, <laughs> in my two years on this podcast. Insert quote about London buses. <laughs> yeah, she's she's really apologetic. Um, she she knows not what she has done, um, but she is very very much in the dog house. Um, uh, in an attempt to um, make up for this total debacle, I have captured some. Uh, depending on how you look at it, very funny photos of her with the uh, incriminating cable. She chewed right the way through it. It makes you feel any better. She really, she really seemed to enjoy herself. No, it doesn't no. make me feel any better. No. Uh, okay. It, it, she can be Grigor Dimitrov smashing a racket into smithereens for all I care. Um, but no, it doesn't. Um, she, but at least, right, least we've got Simon Briggs on the show today later on. So Billy Jean's in the doghouse. Daniil Medvedev's in the final. Um what what different fates they've both had today? Uh, Billie Jean is more in the Stefanos Tsitsipas sort of type situation. Um, he uh, came into press conference in slightly existential crisis mode because two days ago he beat Rafael Nadal and to use our or perhaps David's uh, analogy, he thought he'd conquered his, Ever- conquered his Everest. And uh, 48 hours later, he discovers that actually he's just got a new Everest because uh, he's now peak. actually got fewer wins over Daniil Medvedev than he does over Rafael Nadal. Mm. He's got a yeah. Medvedev problem. 
He has, yeah. And wasn't Medvedev spectacularly good today? Um, and he walked out onto the court. He was more or less booed onto the court by the Sitsipas Greek supporting fans in the in the crowd. And, I mean, it was great fun, great pantomime, great sort of um, circus stuff. And um, and Medvedev, you could, you could almost tell that he was thinking, okay, okay, this is my kind of thing. And <laughs> he blooming well made it his kind of match. Yeah, those are the conditions in which Medvedev absolutely thrives. Obviously, those were very much the, the situation he found himself in at the US Open a couple of years ago when he reached the final. Um, yeah, I mean, really stark today how much of a Medvedev problem Sitsipas has. He's not the only one. Medvedev is beating everyone at the moment, quite literally. 20 wins in a row now, 12 of those against the top 10. But... Sitsipas wasn't able to read Medvedev's serve at all, and Medvedev really honed in on Sitsipas's weaknesses, particularly that backhand, the way he exploited exploited that backhand and extracted errors from it. Um it was it was a complete performance for Medvedev. I think one of the best I've seen him play. He actually said he thought he played better against Rublev the round earlier. Um, when, you know, he was very good in that match as well. But this, to me, felt like a step up, especially considering we know the sort of weapons that Sitsipas does have. Um, yeah, I thought he was absolutely brilliant today, Medvedev. 6-4, um, There was a, a tiny little wobble in the third set. He had led by a break. He he, he squandered the break. Sitsipas got it back. He said after the match that that he he got a little bit tight. He said the crowd got into his head in the third set. And he said that wouldn't usually be the case, but he was so unused to playing in that sort of situation with those kind of crowds that he, he very briefly let it get to him um, before swatting that to one side and, and being brilliant again. But there was just the faintest flicker of a moment where you thought a Krajinovic might happen. And yeah. and Sitsipas fans certainly did or ho- or hoped. Yeah, and also that a Sitsipas Nadal might happen because he he was taking that third set in a similar direction, making it close, clawing his way back, putting pressure on. And in the Nadal match, Nadal buckled, which seems so surprising, really. But that the two smashes and and, and Medvedev did start to miss. He also started to play a little safer because all the way through the first two sets, he was in charge. Sitsipas could not hit through him. His his ground strokes were making no impact at all. And also Medvedev was just targeting the backhand relentlessly, almost like Nadal against Federer in, in the, the first 10 years, just saying, come on, come on, keep swishing away with that shot and see if you can hit through me. Well, you can't, and eventually you're going to top edge one. And that's that was happening a lot, and uh, and and he was going after his shots, and then just in that third set when he was starting to tighten, he was playing safe. He was playing spinnier forehands that were sitting there for Sitsipas to have a go at. But the moment he was able to just brush that off and hit through the ball again, those courts suit him down to the ground. The ball's skidding through low, and and just perfect for those flat drives. Yeah, I think the feeling of the match in that third set changed more than the reality 
because it really felt like a comeback was possible. And yet in the scoreline, Medvedev never went down a break or anything like that. He just lost the little lead that he had. Um, so I think perhaps in our minds, it really felt like the match could turn there and then, but Medvedev never, never lost control enough so that it did get away from him. Um, David said that Sitsipas couldn't hit through Medvedev and I was absolutely blown away to discover on the Australian Open website with their list of stats that Sitsipas only managed to hit two winners from the baseline in this match and both of those were passing shot winners. So whenever they were trading from the back of the court, Sitsipas didn't once hit a winner past Medvedev. Medvedev has got this backboard capability that is so reliable and so dependable combined with underrated movement that he becomes completely impenetrable and that's for someone like Sitsipas who has weapons now he found some ways around it a little bit Sitsipas he came to the net knocked off some decent volleys hit some winners from inside the court but when they were going toe-to-toe from the baseline there was quite literally no way through for Sitsipas. That is how well Medvedev played today. And through gritted teeth, Sitsipas acknowledged that and more in his press conference afterwards. I said, look, he didn't, his teeth didn't look gritted. I'm just imposing that on him because I know these two don't like one another. There's no love lost. But actually Sitsipas was very generous about Medvedev in post-match press. He said, I wouldn't be surprised to see Daniil win the tournament. But then two years ago, I was 100% sure that Nadal was going to win the tournament after he beat me. I'm not a betting website. Don't ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Then he said, he's a player who's unlocked pretty much everything in the game. He's reading the game really well. He has this amazing serve, which I would describe as close to John Isner's serve. And then he has this amazing baseline game. So even if you return the serve, it's just so hard. He plays the game really smart. It's interesting to see that. I mean, he's right about all of that, perhaps not the slight exaggeration about John Isner. Um, But it is funny the way he thinks, well, if they've beaten me in straight sets, they're obviously the best player on the planet and they're going to win everything (laughs) now. It is quite funny the way he does that. And he's kind of acknowledging that he he did that because he did it. He did it two years ago. But yeah, it's, Mm. it's hard to see the hard to see the weakness in the Medvedev game. And he. He is this master of disguise. It's it's extraordinary. He's he's this supreme athlete in the body of a sort of slightly sick, sickly aging man. He's this. Uh, he's got this sort of really quite effective forehand in the guise of this horrible, unwieldy. Um, funky looking stroke and he's got this backhand which you don't know which way it's going until after he's hit it almost till after the ball's landed in court you just don't know what he's going to do with it he's he's really something Medvedev and he's also this sort of lovely chap disguised as a pantomime villain or he's a a real villain disguised as a lovely chap maybe Mm. Because, I mean, look, he's coming out into the court and there's a steal to him. I mean, he loved it when it all started kicking off and uh, and when Sitsipas slammed his water bottle into the ground and Medvedev could just look at Riley at the uh, the umpire, uh, James Kjothavong, and just 
query as to whether that's a warning or whether it should be. You gonna you gonna warn him for that? You gonna <laughs> gonna gonna do anything? <laughs> it was great. Yeah, the aggro was simmering all match, wasn't it? It, it never quite boiled over, but it was always surface level. Uh, there was there was a moment where Medvedev ran past Sitsipas's chair doing sort of high knees or something, or um, <laughs> <laughs> and and Medvedev uh, alerted James Giorgiovong to the fact that Apostolos Sitsipas was maybe being a bit too vocal, um, but beyond that, nobody was asked to shut their fuck up, <laughs> and that was a tremendous disappointment. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of what I expected, though. They have slightly rode back from the from the drama that they had in their first meeting in in more recent times um but i think that point about medvedev's deception is so important because and personally for me i find myself liking medvedev more and more every time i watch him play and usually one of the considerations for me that goes into why i like watching a player is because i like their style there's something aesthetically pleasing about the way they play. That, that is a factor for me in which players I'm drawn to. And yet I wouldn't call Medvedev aesthetically pleasing, really, for my eye anyway. And yet I absolutely love watching him play because of that deception, because of how mysterious his game is. And the more you watch him, the more you understand him. And I think he's very rewarding from that perspective. Um, just a lot to get your teeth into with him. After you initially watch him, you might not think there is. But I think the more you watch him, the more you discover about him. And I think that's quite exciting. Well, he also hit one of, well, probably the shot of the championship as well, which uh, was just in the nick of time when Sitsipas was coming back at him, forcing break points, and then suddenly plays a perfectly good point of serve out wide forehand into the open space and actually into the corner. And he went from one side of not just the court, but the entire playing area, uh, including the, the outskirts and outside the tram lines went from on the right hand of the pitcher over to the left hand of the pitcher. And by the time he got to the ball, the ball was virtually on the ground and he is with two hands and racket outstretched, flicking the ball around an incoming Stefanos Tsitsipas curling it almost like a footballer hitting with the outside of the foot and bending it around the wall uh, and into the corner. And it was just extraordinary. And his celebration afterwards, he loved it more than anybody in the whole crowd. Um, and he was on his feet waving his arms around like like a football fan celebrating a goal. It was just amazing. Matt, you posted a picture of the shape that Medvedev had to contort his body into in order to hit that shot and it's ludicrous it's, it's not a human it it's like it, it is like a contortionist in the sort of 1800 circus <laughs> yeah and it shouldn't be possible to get your body in that position and even once you've got your body in that position you would think it was a really weak and flimsy position to be in and yet he appeared to find stability and power from it. Just another way in which he's he's deceiving. He looks like his body should sort of break apart. And yet it doesn't. And it really rewards the tennis that he plays. He's, he's absolutely fascinating. 
Max Verlander thinks that is the best backhand down the line. It's He says, well, no, he says in general, the Medvedev backhand down the line is as good as anyone I've ever seen. He's seen a oh, lot of people. Rich praise. Well, it's it's fantastic, that backhand. Um, it's so reliable for him. Plus, it's aggressive. Um, horrible combination for a player, especially if it's a, a right-handed player who's used to hitting cross-court with their own backhand. I mean, you don't want to be going there. And yet the forehand is increasingly becoming a problem as well. So he is he's an all-round... I mean, the only weakness he has is when he has to come forward to the net and he really looks unsure at the net. Um, but so often he's won the point before he has to worry about that. Mm. I think he's one of those players who's okay at the net on their own terms. He does occasionally use it as a tactic. He comes forward... But if you if you can drag him into the net, he looks really uncomfortable. And there were a couple of really, really dodgy volleys today, weren't there? You know, Belly even made the net and he was at the net. Uh, he sort of hit the frame with them. So that is certainly an area for him to improve. But as you said, normally it's not it's not that much of a factor. 20-odd aces. Mm. Yeah, and a 208-kilometre-per-hour serve, second serve on match point. That was lovely. Says it all. And that's, you know, there are other players that do that, but they don't tend to be the very top players. Um, usually that's Nick Kyrgios, Mark Philippoussis, players that are a bit different, you know, actually uh, increasingly, and it's not quite up there in the same velocity, but Djokovic has started throwing in a few of those. Uh, not quite flat hit first serves, but really going after a second serve and accepting that it might miss. Um, and I'm sure Goran has been an influence in that way, but it's definitely made Djokovic more effective. But the way Medvedev does it, it's just, I don't care. I'm just going to smash this down as hard as I can. Just to touch quickly on Sitsapas's performance today, personally, I felt like I'd probably overlooked how much the Nadal match took out of him. I really just assumed that physically he would be okay today, and perhaps he was. Perhaps it was a mental and emotional fatigue, you know, the fact that beating Nadal required so much of him and he was perhaps not quite able to bring his full tank to the court today against Medvedev. He seemed seemed pretty flat to me. This is probably the point at which usually, David, I would, I would mock you for your prediction. Um, but given I'm making you record this for the second time today <laughs> and you've just done two uh, very ostentatious yawns. Uh, I'm just. I'm going to let you off the hook and uh, say whatever you like. Great predictions, all tournament. Well done. Thanks very much. I tried to hold him in. <laughs> he was a bit flat, wasn't he? He. I don't know whether he was necessarily physically tired, but um... I think the fatigue comes out when things start going wrong. Because mm. I, I think he came out jauntily. I think he came out confidently. I think he thought, right, I've beaten Nadal. Come on then, I'll have the next one. And he and he just got smacked in the mouth. He wasn't expecting Grig- uh, he wasn't expecting Dano Medvedev to 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 just cause him that many problems, you know. And I think he's he's probably a, a player who quite quickly forgets the bad experiences and just assumes that this time it's going to be different. Um, and he was shaken to the boots because I mean. Those two first sets were not close. And expended 
energy he couldn't afford to on the on the crowd situation on what the crowd were requiring from him i mean it Hmm. does it doesn't suit him he was an inferior player with the crowd there uh, and and i think mainly because he was having to get him he was getting emotional he was getting upset i mean fatigue can also bring on that and take you away from your calm that he'd established against nadal but i also just think yeah i do think that the heat inside the stadium people willing him on loving him he likes it at arm's length he mm. kind of wants to just be able to go about his business really um and uh yeah i don't think it really did suit him mm. or is it suited medvedev kind of kind of down to the ground i'm fascinated to know what the crowd response is going to be on sunday david would you, would you like your spirits lifted by one simon briggs oh yes please <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Well, here he is. It's Simon Briggs, everyone, the Telegraph's tennis correspondent. Simon, how are you doing? How has your Australian Open been? Yeah, been pretty bizarre. Um, I guess it's a little bit like being in New York when you wake up and, and the office have already been awake for hours um, and you're catching up. Only this time you're waking up and the players have been awake for hours. Um, and uh, it's quite discombobulating. But, um, you know, I think that the tournament's definitely produced some decent stories, particularly second week. First week was a little bit squashed from a newspaper man's point of view because there were Six Nations rugby and... Uh, England cricket going on. That was hard to get your voice heard above that, but it's, uh, it's a lot better this week. A Djokovic-Medvedev final is, we, is what we've just been working up to, uh, to previewing. How much 
cut through would you expect that to have in the UK? How much space do you expect to get in the paper? How 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 big a deal do you think that that story, however it might pan out, will end up being? Well, I suppose on the principle that you know newspapers run on unexpected events, then a Djokovic win would be su- substantially less saleable than a Medvedev one. I mean, it's not as if Medvedev has a massive profile uh, in the UK yet, but um, but but nevertheless, surprises are what, are what tend to um, to kind of motivate sports desks. And you know, the the the, the sad truth of uh, yesterday's semi final was that the, the desk were much more interested in. And Williams is going out, then, then you know, Azarka's going through. That's the way it works. So, uh, if Novak wins, then um, it'll be a, a, another record-breaking performance, as as it is, you know, when Rafa wins in Paris. And I guess I did the story at the beginning of the tournament, trying to draw the comparisons between those two sort of absolute uh, reigns. But it's not as if it's a it's a dramatic result, is it? Do you think he could Medvedev have? have a big profile in the UK. I mean, obviously winning will be required for that, but provided the winning, whether it be on Sunday or at some stage happens, you know, we've just all been talking about how much we love him. All, you know, his non-celebration celebrations, his his not being afraid of a bit of aggro, you know, his being the most gifable man in tennis. Do you, do you think he has the potential on the profile front to to become someone with cut through? Well, UK-wise, I would say that the uh, at, at the moment, the decisive factor is always performances at Wimbledon. So even if he was to, to dominate the hard court scene for, for years in a Naomi Osaka sort of way, until he um, wins Wimbledon, there's there's an element of, of people that he won't reach it. Um, I think you, you probably see that with Osaka as well, um, because she hasn't really performed that well yet on grass. That, that there's, a, there's a sort of a kind of constituency she hasn't really reached. Um, in terms of personality, it's it's certainly uh, he's a great interviewee, isn't he? And uh, that's helpful. I would say that at the moment, his game is sort of um, it may not be the the the, the kind that that sort of people. It's a, it's a purist game, isn't it? I think it, I think I enjoy watching him, but I'm not sure it's it's sort of it's the kind of game which um, which will get the floating voter in the same. Extent that maybe Sitsipas would if he was if he was a stronger uh, rival from Medvedev. When you say he's a, a great interviewee, Simon, what 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 do you mean? When he's in a press conference for you, what what are you getting? He just seems to really engage with the whole process. I mean, Sitsipas does too, but um, but from his kind of slightly kind of uh, surreal sort of standpoint on life, that Sitsipas is very different, isn't he? Uh, Medvedev is is more of a kind of He's got a, a cheeky side, hasn't he? A mischievous side. He, he likes to um, kind of go at things from a slightly different angle as well, um, in a very different style to Sitsipas. But um, it's just uh, that sense that he's he's taking he's taking everything um, in, in with with the intent to to give you something to work with. Let's put it like that, because today, you know, he he's come out and he said that all the pressure's on Novak. I mean, it's not a complicated thing to say, but, you know, that's really helpful <laughs> if you're trying to write a preview, if people are prepared to come out and say that. And actually, it's surprising how many people would just shy away from any sort of uh, pre-match kind of mini-baiting, you might call it, that he's doing there. And, it, and it's really refreshing if you're, if you're somebody who's, who's um, used to 
to people just telling each other how good they are and how much they respect each other. Do you buy that? He said it both on the court to Jim Courier and reiterated it in his press conference. He said he's the eight-time champion. He's the one that's never lost a final. He said he's got all the experience, but he's also got all the pressure. Do you, is that mind games or do you, do you buy that he believes that? In a way, it's almost a declaration of, of how much he backs himself, isn't it? That he's prepared to go in kind of throwing a few darts in, in Novak's direction because most people would kind of go in uh, in this situation saying, well, he's the eight-time champion, you know, uh, I'll do my best and see what happens. Uh, I think it was more of a, a declaration of somebody who's so confident after, was it 11 um, wins over the top 10 players in a row? Is it 11 or 12 now? 12 Maybe now, it's 12. Yeah. I think it's 12. So uh, I think he's just saying, you know, <laughs> check me out. Which is exactly what you want to hear from somebody in that position. Did you see that Novak Djokovic on Eurosport said to Mats Valander, he sort of gave you another good line, Simon. He's, he's, he's embracing this, this rivalry. And he said, uh, we can talk all we want about the new generation coming through, but with all my respect, they still have a lot of work to do. And I'm not going to hand it to them. And I'm going to make them work their ass off for it. Yeah. <laughs> a, a dash, dash, dash. <laughs> that has to be in, in the Telegraph. Um, the uh, I think that was actually recorded after the Carrot's mm. win, wasn't it? So it wasn't in response to um, to, to Medvedev's comments. But uh, yeah, well, again, I think they're both sort of posturing a little bit. And Novak was really, really keen in every quote that he gave after his Carrot's win to tell everybody how brilliant he was feeling and to try and extinguish any hope that they might have that he was uh, slightly wounded still. And that was, again, part of the same thing. So, um, so yeah, it was... Uh, it was a good quote. Um, I didn't actually end up really writing about Karatsev matches. It lacked a bit of, of bite, really. But the uh, I kind of did a little bit of a resuscitation of the old Sitsipas Medvedev feud, um, which, as, I, as far as I could tell, wasn't particularly reflected in any events on the court. But um, I thought it was it deserved another go. I hadn't written it for two years since the um, ATP Finals meeting. My view is that we'll always, always deserve another go. Yeah. Um, and- um, is your is your current hairstyle a sit to pass tribute? Just lockdown hair. I mean, uh, I could have gone, I suppose, in the in, in that period when the hairdressers were open. But uh, as we stand, it's now uh, at least um, at least a year since I've been to the the barber, and it's had no attention. <laughs> hairdressers were open for a while. I know, I know. Yeah. No, I just um, I didn't quite make it in that window. Just embracing your inner. In a sit to pass. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm not sure I'm carrying it off, but. <laughs> I, I understand that some of your uh, many thousands of words written already this morning um, are about Naomi Osaka and a, an interview you've done with her, her fitness trainer. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, that was actually before the tournament, but I mean, I think the, uh, the stuff about how they work together and, and how impressed that he's been with her is, is sort of evergreen. I mean, every, every trainer will talk up their, their player, obviously. <laughs> you wouldn't expect them to do anything else, but he was interesting. You know, the guy worked with Sharapova for eight years. Um, and uh, he, he thought when he finished with Sharapova that he really had enough of the tour. But uh, I think, you know, he's a, he's a Japanese guy. He spent most of his time in the US. So I think when, when the offer to work with the Zaka came up, he probably saw something special there. And he, 
he talks about her being on a different level even to Sharapova. Um, he says that, you know, she, her appetite for work and the intensity that she can train at is, is above and beyond. Um, and I mean, I, I think that Sharapova, she'd never leave any, you know, IOT undotted or uncrossed in, in her training, but I don't think that she was a natural athlete, was she, in the same way that um, Azarka is. And I think both um, Nakamura and Fissette have worked on, on her explosivity, and that's been a factor in the return games, because we're seeing the way that she's moving to the serve and the, the, the match against Serena, four breaks in nine, nine Williams service games. It's, it's all coming out of the um, the effort that they put in in the gym, I think, partly as well as, uh, as, as just specifically training that aspect of her game. I know you've resigned from tennis podcast predictions. <laughs> <laughs> there's, only, there's, only, they... uh, there's only two choices left to get us a bit easier, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted to, uh, one of our year-long predictions categories was whether Serena Williams will win a slam this year. I want to put that specific prediction to you. And I also want to ask your interpretation of her exit from the Rod Laver arena yesterday and that very poignant moment where she, she greeted the crowd in the way she did. Yeah, I, I felt it was a farewell, but I could be wrong. I mean, the, the other little wrinkle here is, I mean, you probably spotted the, the Courier interview where he asked her about the documentary crew that's been following mm. her around Melbourne. I mean, somebody tweeted that there, there, there were seven documentary crews present for last year's Australian Open. So I guess it's not unusual. And, and also Novak's having one film, isn't he? But um, nevertheless, I, there was a rumour that it, it might be doing a season's diary. And to me, that does have a slight whiff of a... Uh, uh, is, it, is, it, is it a farewell diary as well? Um, you know, and I just... The, with the Olympics coming up, it's such a big part of her her career. I just... I can't really see her coming back in a year's time unless something changes. I mean, maybe if she were to go on a winning streak again, I mean, you, I guess the next question is, will she win a major um, this year? And it can always happen. I mean, her movement was so good, wasn't it? So much improved in this tournament. And Wimbledon, everyone knows, has got to be her best chance. Azarka has never been competitive, really, on clay or grass. Azarka, I'm pretty sure, really likes playing her, even though there's this thing about her um, having, you know, Serena as an idol. I think that she she just fancies it now. Um, and on a hard court, to me, those last eight points were so indicative of somebody who, even though she maybe didn't play a, a great match by her own standards, I don't think it was a great match, was it? But she she knew that she had that, that extra level just to go to when she needed it and, and just put the pedal down when she had to. So Azarka is a threat for her on hard, won't be too much on clay or grass. Um, so I certainly wouldn't rule her out Wimbledon. Um, but uh, the other slams may be looking harder. What's she like, Asaka, for you as a, as a journalist? Yeah, really good because um, because so different. I mean, we had this thing at the Telegraph where we did a supplement with her the Telegraph Women's Sport put her on the cover um, just last month. She was, she was editing really good it, to wasn't work she? With. Yeah, she was guest editing it and she contributed a, an essay about why she felt that she wanted to use the US Open as a, as a platform for activism. There's a really good quote actually in the Utaka um, interview um, where he talked about the uh, pandemic and he said, if you have a 
path that you want to walk, uh, you can do it. But if you're not certain and clear, you will struggle. That's that's how he feels about pandemic life in general. Um, and he thinks that, that because she found that motivation and, and that mission at the US Open, that it really that was that was a really important period for her. They were all living in a house together, uh, her Fissette and Nakamura. Uh, and so they, they really bonded and they went back to LA um, after the tournament and, and they were in a house again, um, working and just only going out for essential shopping supplies, he said. So they, they, they brought a quite an incredible level of commitment to this um, business of, of kind of developing her athleticism and her explosive power. And it just sounds like um, they, they've bonded very well as a team. And, and, and Fissette, of course, such an incredible record that he's got with so many different players. You just think that, that they're on the right track. I wanted to get your view, Simon, on a, on a story that I, I think dropped yesterday or something. It's sort of been around uh, for, for 24 hours or so. I'm reading a piece in the West Australian about the cost of this Australian Open, the deficit um, that it will that it will cost Tennis Australia being estimated at a hundred million dollars. There are quotes from from Craig Tiley here saying they don't know the absolute bottom line figure yet, but he said we're definitely going to lose multi millions of dollars um, on this event. He says they have uh, about eighty million in in reserves, um, which they will exhaust, um, and then they'll be taking out anywhere from a forty million to a sixty million dollar loan. Um, and he said, obviously, we took a big hit with five days with no fans. So you don't sell merchandise sponsors. Sponsors don't get activation. You don't sell tickets or premium hospitality. So five or 14 days is a is a big hit. And he talked about their motive. You know, it doesn't sound like this level of loss has come as a surprise mm. to Craig Tiley and Tennis Australia. So he's talked about what the motivation was to stage this thing. Um, in spite of that, he said he feels like he's given the sporting world a playbook for staging events in a large international events in a pandemic, a playbook that they can share with the rest of the world. Um, and he said that they feel like they've secured their future on the Grand Slam calendar, which indicates mm. that they've perhaps felt like if they hadn't been able to stage it, that future might have been in question. Well, there was, there was a lot of pre-publicity about that. I don't know if you remember people, um, including Daniel Andrews, I think, the Victorian Premier, saying, if we don't do it here, then they'll take the Australian Open and, and do it in Shanghai or Hong Kong or Singapore. And, you know, it did seem a little hysterical. Um, in terms of the motivation to run, I think you've got to remember that if they don't run it, you know, they, they have at least a hundred million dollars of broadcasting contracts. Um, so that money would have been forfeited instantly. Um, so it seems to me that you were looking at a big loss, not running a tournament or a big loss, putting it on. Um, and I, I guess they would have hoped for it to be a little better because they, they, they did lose that time in the middle and overall, you know, the crowds have been small, even when people have been allowed to travel, travel. And it does feel I, it's impossible. How, how can we tell from here? But it does feel as if the Melburnians are kind of brutalised by, the, by their lockdown experience. Excellent, though they have uh, been at containing the virus. And that people have just been almost they're just out of the habit of going to stuff. 
uh, and that's hurt the, 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 the you know the tickets. Who who would have guessed that the, the t- that once they finally started the real tournament, the crowds would have been considerably smaller than than the, the maximum attendance after people have been you know deprived of, of this sort of live sport for so long. I wouldn't have. So I imagine they would have had more optimistic forecasts. But um, to me, I think it, it was a lose lose situation financially. Um, and you know the real the real question is almost how did he find that courage to, to run the event knowing that let's say something had got into the community I mean to me that can you imagine how the damage that would have done to the Australian Open brand so yes they're going to be financially crippled but they have got away with it in the sense that um, the worst case scenario has not come to pass and you know kudos for them for for the efforts they put in because it it has been an absolutely mammoth undertaking um and you know i'm i'm happy that we we should be able to go away and say it was it was a it was another good slam in in suboptimal circumstances as indeed were the were the two at the end of last year and incredible that they've maintained prize money i know they've altered the distribution to make it more equitable mm. but given those numbers incredible that they uh they didn't choose to adjust prize money. Yep. Um, and, you know, when those players are constantly um, carping about the slams, not, not looking after them, um, I mean, it's different from individual tournament to individual tournament, but I think Australia Open, is, <laughs> they've, they've put their shoulder to the wheel for the players um, and, uh, and they deserve to, to be thanked by fans, players, you know, us in the media for, for the efforts they've put on. Have you got any sense, Simon, of what's next for tennis? I feel like everyone's attention for so long has been on this Australia swing and getting the Australian Open done. I know there's been some quotes in the press conferences this week, Djokovic and Zverev talking about how they think tennis needs to adopt a bubble approach. Uh, Nadal kind of swatted that one away and said, well, where where else are we going to have to quarantine um, and Schwartzman, I know, has been talking about how difficult it is for people in South America if they're not going to adjust the rankings like they did last year so that you don't have to play. He said it's just going to be so difficult to keep travelling at the moment. What's your sense on all that? Well, I mean, Monte Carlo is sort of the next, um, uh, and, and Miami, I guess, are the next ones we're hearing of. Indian Wells is pretty much off, isn't it? Um, Miami looks to be happening um Probably with a with a very limited um, sort of crowds and, and, and media attendance, um, Monte Carlo closed doors. So these are the sort of bigger events. It's going to be a mixture of cancellations and 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 um, crowd free events. In, in terms of the suggestion that people want the tour to stop, well, I'm not sure that the majority would go along with that. Even though Novak did use the word majority in the press conference um there will be some who 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 will say that that that's a view coming from the sort of ptpa hardcore that he's kind of close to because it's like the australian open it wasn't perfect was it Uh, but it was the best that could be delivered in the circumstances and once once people start going to europe um the majority of of players will be able to um get waivers in the same way that Andy Murray did when he went to play the challenger in Northern Italy. So he didn't have to do any quarantine. The South American situation doesn't make it much more difficult. So then you get to the question of 
do you carry on for the benefit of the majority, even though there's a disadvantage to people from a particular continent? And probably you have to. I mean, what's again? What, what's the, what's your alternative scenario? Um, so spending uh, might uh, be uh, might be fairer, <laughs> but it would also leave a lot of people. Um, without any income and, and a lot of tournaments potentially bankrupted. Yeah, I mean, I suppose a, 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 um, a twin tour, you suggested, I think, at the start of the pandemic that we could end up with a, a golf-style European and elsewhere tour. So mm. this could be what causes that kind of splinter. But there's absolutely no chatter about that, is there? I'm just sort of thinking aloud. Nobody's, nobody's speculating that, that that might be a scenario. I mean, the thing is, you know, that, that, that Zverev and, and Novak both sort of posited the NBA model of, of having a, an event and, and, and putting sort of four weeks of tournaments on there. And, and yeah, if you're starting with a blank slate, you can do that. But um, you're dealing not with a league as a single league in the NBA form, but, but so many localised independent um, businesses and promoters who who have their own needs financially in their own budget so um he's right that would be the best solution but it's just not something that can be assembled and i guess that my, my pandemic um theory of of localized tours is it, it sort of falls on, on on the same um disadvantage that it's just ripping everything up and, and placing a, a pandemic tour in its place it sounds good but uh logistically it's just um it's just not very feasible not sure anyone's going to want to join a tour called the pandemic tour (laughs) (laughs) i I got two two more questions for you simon quickly one is come on then let's have your two winners of these two finals uh well i think i have to go with the with the ranking favorites and be boring and go for novak and naomi okay and what happened on valentine's day (laughs) <laughs> when I sent, when I sent Andy Murray's agent, it was um. <coughs> well, I don't even know if it was it a Valentine's Day emoji. It was that one with a coffee cup, a biscuit, and a and a heart between them. Do you know that one? It comes up on it's, WhatsApp. It's, Have you seen it? A sticker. It's a sticker. Oh wow! So it wasn't even an emoji. No. Well, no. Or, even, or even an well, emoji. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, people did tell me I was making it up, so obviously I have made it up because I got the wrong piece of terminology. Well, I I don't know. I know that stickers exist and they're sort of there. And I, I always look at them and think, who uses those? <laughs> now I know. Accidental treaters. So, Simon, you sent one of those accidentally to... To, to, to Matt Gentry, the um, at 77, who, who runs Andy Murray's affairs in, 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 in the... In the process of a debate about is he going to play the second challenger or <laughs> did you did you leave did you leave it to hang in there France. in the chat like a a bad smell or did you follow up with the oh sorry I meant that for someone else or what I don't know, I think I said I, I said I pushed the wrong button but I, I was I was too slow to delete it what what did you how, what was the reply uh, uh, haha happy Valentine's Day to you what <laughs> <laughs> a lovely episode magnificent. That is sensational, Simon. Um, thanks so much for your company and for your predictions. We've missed them. Oh well, they were, they were very exciting, weren't they? I mean, <laughs> I, I was like, how can anyone ever predict against um, against Novak on Rod Laver Arena? But having said that, you know, I think Medvedev has a chance. But mm. you wouldn't back him, would you? Well, would only be well, backing we'll, him, or is maybe. it too early for that? 
I might, but I picked Medvedev pre-tournament and I might stick with it. But if you, yeah, yeah. The tournament's not gone well for me generally, Simon. So <laughs> <laughs> don't, 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 as, as Stefanos Sitspas might say, ask a gambling mm. website. <laughs> David's got Brady, hasn't he? Uh, nope. No. No, I, yeah, but I had, a get, I had to get into the semis and being beaten by Bartu, so that didn't happen. Okay. Anyway, pretty good. Not too bad. Um, as Simon might say, check out his, check him out, check out his uh, pieces <laughs> in the Telegraph. They're great. Uh, and yeah, that, that piece with uh, Osaka's uh, physical trainer will run, well, it will be up today, Friday, and be in the, in the paper tomorrow? Yes, that's right, yeah. Lovely stuff. So check him out. And Simon, thank you very much. Enjoy finals weekend. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, Simon Briggs there. That was that was fun, wasn't it? It's never it's never not a roller coaster with Simon. Indeed. Ah, oh, and the hair, legendary. The hair is quite quite something, isn't it? Yeah. It jumped back when he came on the Zoom. <laughs> Physically jumped back. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's legend. maybe Milos Raonic would be a, a better. Her comparison. He really embraced lockdown. That's really lockdown good. Lockdown curls, didn't mm, he? Yeah. Mm. yeah. And Pierre I mean, Herbert. Although Simon hasn't got a top knot yet. Oh, crazy. He's had a go with one of has those. He? Yeah. Yeah. I think right. so. Maybe not. But. Big if true. <laughs> um, what do we think of what he had to say? Anything we want to pick up on in particular? It's interesting what he was saying about. I mean, I suppose it's not surprising, you know, the kind of cut through of these players. I mean, Osaka and Medvedev, slightly different cases. Osaka, we're talking about somebody who could, you know, to quote ourselves, separate herself from the rest of women's tennis. And yet her results at Wimbledon have been such that here, and this is very UK centric of us, um, but but there, there might not be the cut through that that, that potentially warrants. It's like, yeah. you know, Oasis not making it in America. We, we we do, I think, always have to be mindful that we are a tennis podcast and we are people who work in tennis full-time and that doesn't necessarily translate to a general audience. Um, we, we've seen that with people who've done really well at Wimbledon and not elsewhere over the years. Um, but I, I also found it interesting that Medvedev would kind of be the biggest story for him, whereas I, I suppose I would have thought maybe closing the gap might have been in terms mm. of the Grand Slam race. But I found that very interesting from a newspaper perspective. And then I, just as a final thought on a more tennis angle, the, uh, the, the suggestion from Simon that he didn't think Osaka would necessarily be a threat on clay or grass, I'm just so interested to watch her play on those two surfaces now, given what she's been doing for the last year. I mean, we didn't see her at the French Open because she pulled out after winning the US Open it's going to be just I, – I, I kind of feel like I will watch every single match she plays on clay and grass. No matter when it is, I will just be glued to it. Well, she'll, she'll be on for the calendar slam, won't she? As everybody mm. is after winning the Australian Open. But, you know, it's, it's extra, extra motivation if it were needed. If she wins it. If, if, Jen, if she, Jen Brady tomorrow. <laughs> Jen Brady could be on for the calendar slam. Correct. And she looks like she has a game that could certainly adapt to clay, I'd have thought. Tell that to Clara Towson, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Some of us have, some of us went hook, line and sinker for that one. Thank you very much. Mm. What I think about Osaka is my impression is that movement-wise, she prefers the clay, actually. 
it's the real it's the movement on the grass where she really struggles mm. but sort of stroke production wise i think her shots would have incredible impact on the grass whereas perhaps that power she has is slightly negated on the clay i'm sure she can hit through it but i think more people can probably live with it on a slower clay uh, so it's it's sort of two different things that she has to deal with on those surfaces it's not the same problem she'll she'll crack I think them both she probably will she, she will it's with just time. a matter of time it, it, it's so often the movement with grass isn't it you know i remember carolina pliskova kind of reaching breaking point a couple of years ago um when she had lost early at wimbledon as she invariably does and just saying i wish people had stop stop telling me that i should be good on grass because i've got a big serve and a hard hitting game she said I find grass the hardest because I just can't move on it. I just can't nail the movement. And I think um, maybe it wasn't her that said that. Maybe it was Conchita Martinez that said that about her. Um, but certainly she said she finds grass the hardest. Um, and yeah. I, I remember seeing Sitsapas at Queen's a couple of years ago and thinking, oh, Sitsapas be great on grass. He's good up at the net, all court game. And he just looked so unsure of his footing. Yeah. Um, and, and hearing, uh, he didn't mention this specifically, but hearing Simon speak there about Wimbledon reminded me that Daniil Medvedev cites grass as his favourite surface. Oh, wow. That's or he always used to. Um, I mean, he's barely won matches on clay. And that's a he? very interesting yeah. one, you know, how, how his ball just flies through this surface and puts Sitsipas on the back foot and you watch him on clay you kind of wonder how he'll ever win a match. Mm, he certainly wonders as well. There were mm. some very amusing Daniil Medvedev quotes during the um, clay court season at the back end of last year. So what do we think is happening tomorrow then? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us all an extra 24 hours to, to nail our colours to the mast on Medvedev Djokovic. What do we think is happening? Is anyone giving poor old Jem Brady a chance tomorrow? I'm looking oh, at I you, am. David. Yeah, I'm giving her a chance. So you're predicting sure. a Jim Brady win then? No. Right. That's 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 what I meant. No. I don't I'm not gonna pick her to win. Um I think she'll either play really well and we'll have another classic and she'll just get edged out, or she may struggle and it might be a blowout. Mm. Yeah. I'm leaning on the side of Osaka in two reasonably comfortable sets because I think she's a better player, number one. <sighs> And she'll be able to deal with the occasion, I think, better. I am I am concerned about Brady struggling a little bit, particularly at the start. I'm concerned about her being able to feel her legs. That's, you know, mm. fingers crossed, sensation has returned. That was what she said for anyone that doesn't, didn't hear the podcast yesterday after she won the semi-final. I can't feel my legs. <laughs> yeah, I think she... What I... I just think Brady will come out and fight. Um, it's just can she connect early enough, early enough to get some foothold in the match? It, it can go by so quickly. But then you know we have seen some finals where Osaka started slowly. Remember the one against Nazarenka last year? Um, she turned it round, but it's not it's not inevitable this this match. Uh, but I, I on the balance of it all, I would definitely pick Osaka to win. Sorry, Matt, I interrupted you earlier. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> I did. Mm. I, I, I guess it's... Were you about to break into song or... <laughs> is it, is it... No. No. Okay. 
I guess it's a different sort of pressure, is it, for Osaka compared to her other major finals in that she's such a heavy favourite. I think, you know, you, you think she's played Serena, Kvitova and Azarenka. They were all quite a bit tighter, I would have said. I just have this belief in Osaka that she can kind of handle anything. So I'm not really that concerned about that for her. It's just something that I've I've noticed. The dynamic is a little bit different in this one. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm feeling a, a three and four or a four and three type vibe. Don't think it'll be a collapse from Brady, but uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm feeling. Um, but again, I'd point you towards my predictions record for the tournament and uh, quote Stefano Sitsipas and say, ask a gambling website. <laughs> um, don't ask a gambling website. Um, just finally, a bit of, uh, bit of boat news for everyone. I received an unsolicited text message from my dad at 11.05 a.m. this morning. Daniil is definitely on the boat, exclamation mark. Oh, and and the reasoning is? I said, please explain why for podcast purposes. He says, he would be great company, colon. Very smart, no ego, intuitive, mischievous too, I suspect. He would never be dull, and I love his accent. <laughs> no ego is an interesting line. Mm. Not sure about that. I think in a boat scenario, I think he would put his ego to one side. Mm. I bet, I bet Sissipas is on I don't know how boat, much he'd he? love being crew. I don't know how much he'd love the whole, you know, authoritarian structure of a boat's crew. I mean, to take orders from my dad. Mm. I didn't think, do we think fun that? really came into the boat equation. I didn't either, Matt, but it turns out Daniil Medvedev brings out the old mischievous side <laughs> in David Whittaker. I think my dad might have to be prepared to do a Gilles Savara picking up his bag and walking off type thing. Yeah. Which... Is it, uh, he's got a dinghy, has he? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think all boats have to have <laughs> dinghies, uh, I think. I asked him about Sitsipas and he said he'd really like... He, he wants to want him on the boat, but he unfortunately doesn't at the moment. Too much mood, he said. <laughs> that is well. Put. You can't have the two. You you can't have them both on there, can you? Because no, it could be everybody true. overboard Although if, if you do that. If mischief, if mischief is your vibe, definitely get them both on the boat, shutting their fucks up <laughs> all over the Atlantic. Uh, apologies to David Law's mum for the language, but really, it, it's Medvedev and sits a pass that should be apologising. Yeah, just Catherine's quoting. just quoting them. I'm just rather, quoting, you know. You got to you got to take that one. Yeah. Uh, just to whiz you through other very notable results uh, from day twelve at the Australian Open, um, Elise Mertens and Arena Sabalenka have won the women's doubles title six two six three over Krejcikova and Siniakova. That's their second Grand Slam title and possibly their final Grand Slam title together. They're not going to be playing the slams. This year, they are still going to play some non-slam events. I think they've signed up to play Miami together. Um, but basically, uh, 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 Sabalenka has explained, I made the decision to play less doubles uh, just after Abu Dhabi this year to focus on her single. She said, Elise couldn't find someone else for the Australian Open. So, of course, I said I'll play with her. We spoke about this tournament and I couldn't leave her on her own. Um, so that's that's very sweet. Um 
they're a they're a formidable partnership um so i wonder if they will actually be able to stay away from one another well they they get on really well they do they? It, was, oh, it was a lovely celebration there's, there's absolutely no animosity between them over that split at all but i do like it when when they split up and get back together mm-hmm. um uh rajiv ram and joe salisbury beat jamie murray and bruno suarez in the battle of the half british men's doubles team 6476 so ram and salisbury are now one match away from defending their maiden uh, Grand Slam title that they won last year. They play Ivan Dodik, Filip Polasek uh, in Sunday's final. And Sam Stozer and Matt Ebden, uh, the World Cards, they're into the mixed doubles final. They beat Salisbury and uh, Desiree Kravchik in a match tiebreak. And they play Krejcikova and Ram in tomorrow's final. So um, the Salisbury double is off, but the Ram double is on. There you go. Mm -hmm. Um, A few other lines for you from elsewhere in the tennis world. Uh, Dario Kazakina has won a title and a penguin. Um, You can only speculate about which which one of those items is more valuable to her. Uh, But it was a very (laughs) cute penguin. Uh, She beat Marie Bushkova in the final of the Philip Island Trophy. Correct. Uh, Bushkova having beaten Andrescu in the semi-finals. Um, the Billie Jean King Cup, formerly the Fed Cup, uh, has been postponed. Um, it was supposed to take place in Budapest in April. Um, we were just discussing yesterday, weren't we, that suddenly April doesn't feel that far away. Um, and they've postponed that until a TBC later date in the calendar, which seems like a smart thing. And just fingers crossed that's able to happen um, because it's just terrible timing for them that that this all came right as they were relaunching and renaming the thing, and it, it deserves a it does deserves a good go for its uh, first run out in its new incarnation. And uh, we've had an announcement from the Lawn Tennis Association that the British summer tournaments, including Queens and Wimbledon, they will go ahead. Uh, one way or another, there's cautious optimism, I think was the phrase used, about the possibility of some sort of crowds being in attendance. But either way, they're planning on them going ahead. Hooray. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Wimbledon had already said a, a while back that one way or another they were going ahead. Um, and yeah, the, the hope is across the board for some crowds and they just won't know for a little while as to what degree what level they can have in attendance but yeah queens eastbourne um there are tournaments in nottingham and birmingham sadly surbiton isn't going to be able to take place this year but um several will hope you know and and i think you've we've just got to count blessings a little bit really to have have tennis back after last year when it was all all dashed you know and it was it was such a sad time um but uh yeah cautious optimism that's a good way of putting it i think um, so that is your 12th daily tennis podcast, the Australian Open. We have two more to come. Crumble will be our mascot for both of them. Hello, Crumble. Crumble's entered the Instagram competition. Send us your or post your pictures of your animals watching tennis. Tag us. Uh, use hashtag tennis podcast pets if you wish we're posting them on our i said i would post the best of them on our story uh, i've just posted all of them because uh, <laughs> they're all great 
um yeah they're all great and uh, I'm going to struggle to pick a winner but uh, it will be it will be a pleasant problem to have um my mascot is Zeus we got this the result but not the score again Zeus we ride again tomorrow Matt yours is Scouse yep same problem for us (laughs) (laughs) and David you got Rogue also entered Rogue yeah yeah we had a bad day I mean, I, c- I couldn't have actually got it any more wrong. No. I said I said five sets for Sid Sebastian. It was three sets for Medvedev. But anyway, you know. Anyway. S- still two days to go. Uh, Chris Albert Lee is our executive producer. He's a top bloke. And our shout-outs today are for... Claire Gitsham. Oh, a bit like Gippsland. <laughs> Gippsland, I mean... sorry. <laughs> That's a stretch, but we'll go with it. <laughs> Hello, Claire. Claire. Thanks ever so much. <laughs> Eric Chew. Ooh, hello, Eric. Right, Eric. Speaking of chewing, I've had a bit of a puppy incident. Yeah. Between the Simon Briggs <laughs> bit and this bit, uh, Billie Jean has <laughs> chewed through Catherine's phone cable. <laughs> Not to worry. Well, yes, to worry, in fact. Yeah, but it's very funny, wasn't it, man? Very funny. Uh, hello, Eric, anyway. David and I were speculating hello, about what, what had happened. I don't think either of us thought that Catherine would now have two phone cables. <laughs> if only either of them worked. And final shout out is for Eli Cronenberg, who is Ooh, Oh my word. Hello. What a name. Eli is the teenage son of Jane and Eli is in our predictions competition this Ooh. year. Oh that is a stunning name. Representing that really the family. Is a great name. Brilliant. Thanks for so much. We have a friend of the show with a son called Eli, so we're a big fan of that name. Uh, Thank you very much for your support, all of you. Shame that none of you have names featured in famous songs, but, you know, there's always tomorrow. (laughs) I'm saying nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can hear the sound of chewing from beneath the chair, so I'm going to wrap this show up quickly uh, we'll be back uh, with our 13th our penultimate Australian Open daily tennis podcast tomorrow thank you for listening tell your friends leave us an iTunes review enter our competition sign up to the newsletter um, hashtag free Britney uh, have I missed anything no okay we'll see you tomorrow bye 